So when you're cooking on TV, taste is all that matters. The only thing that the chefs or the uh, judges put in consideration and are lenient on is temperature. Because as you know, once you cook the dishes out, they're hot with the way that things are produced in television, sometimes these dishes are sitting there before the judges get to taste them and oftentimes they get cold. So you can't truly uh, judge a dish on whether it's hot or cold other than its taste. My name is Viet Pham. I'm a chef restaurateur here in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm an award-winning chef and you might've seen me on lots of different uh, food network or food television. Uh, probably most notable is Iron Chef America. Um, and many other shows. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of First off, congrats on your recent expansion. As I've learned, um, you have four uh, locations now with your restaurant, Pretty Bird. Is that right? Yeah, four locations, Working on slowly working on our fifth and um, hopefully to uh, Southern California soon. Having one is a big feat. What made you decide to expand like that? You know, so, um, you know, thinking back, um, you know, so my background used to be in fine dining and it's a different level of, of, of cooking that I was doing then, you know, but at the same time, um, with a business mindset, I knew that working in a fine dining with a set menu, um, it's not something that was going to be um, scalable. So, you know, early on, I knew that um, eventually once I get out of fine dining, um, I want to work on a concept that is, um, you know, that is, that is, a little bit easier, but more importantly, something that I can scale. So, you know, most of our growth um, has happened actually in the last three years. Now, if you think about the last three years, you think about the pandemic. And, you know, at the same time, there's there were a lot of restaurant closures, especially restaurants that were sit-down style restaurants. Uh, fortunately for myself, Pretty Bird, you know, we're a fast casual restaurant. We serve uh, food that I like to think that is very comforting, you know, and that's fried chicken. So, you know, during that time when a lot of restaurants were closed, uh, we were, you know, one of the fortunate restaurants that were able to maintain um, being open because we basically, like a lot of other restaurants, pivoted to an online, to a, a pickup um, style of restaurant. So, you know, a lot of people were able to visit Pretty Bird, but more importantly, um, by visiting Pretty Bird, they were able to experience a sense of normalcy. And um, I think because of that, um, our restaurant did really well. And we're grateful for that. Um, and, you know, I'm sure those of you that are listening, including yourself here, Kenneth, you, you've, you've probably known of countless people that have lost their restaurants and their businesses during the pandemic. Uh, but we were the fortunate ones. So yeah, you know, most of our growth has happened in the last three years. And, um, you know, we're hoping to, you know, expand Pretty Bird's footprint to outside of Utah, as I mentioned, uh, to Southern California, along the beach cities, and then around the surrounding mountain states of Utah. So that's the goal. And then uh, beyond. I look forward to that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I like to get into uh, everybody's background about how they got to where they are with with, you know, especially chefs and, and artists, it's, it's such a, an interesting progression with everybody's yeah. life. But before we get to that, I want to talk about your name is tied forever with another man, Bobby Flay. 
and uh you know you 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 beat him twice you know and you know how does that you know make you feel because you know as i i was reading about that um i i thought to myself you know that's my biggest nemesis you know i must have an opinion on that so i wanted to ask you that yeah you know i didn't realize um i didn't realize the uh how should I say this? The um, the magnitude of being someone who beat him twice. So, you know, when I was filming um, my third show with him, so the first show I did, uh, Iron Chef America, this is, this is the second food television show that I ever did. And, um, you know, originally when I started that show, um, the person that I wanted to go against was Masaharu Morimoto. Um, and the season that I did it with, it was later on in the season and, um, they didn't allow oncoming chefs to choose who they go against anymore because the schedules of the iron chefs were so busy. So basically when you get on set, literally minutes before you actually get onto the kitchen stadium, they let you know who you're going against. I was really bummed out because I was shooting for Morimoto because I felt like as a young chef at that time, Morimoto, he resonated with me more with my cooking style. And um, I just admire Japanese cuisine and him being a Japanese chef and being of Japanese origin. You know, I just felt like this is going to be something that's going to be um, like extremely competitive and being able to like, you know, like for me to, to, to test my abilities. Uh, but, you know, as soon as I walked on, they're like, Hey, you're going to go against Bobby Flay. And I'm like, darn it. You know, Bobby Flay. I'm like, all right, whatever. And Bobby Flay was kind of an upcoming chef at that time. But, you know, now that I think about it strategically, like it would probably, it, it, it probably was a better thing that I went against yeah. Bobby Flay because he is a more well-known chef and he's more of a household name. You know, and, um, you know, uh, and I beat him. I and, and I think the win on that Iron Chef was his worst loss. My win was his worst loss um, based on the score and percentages. And then, you know, after that, um, I shortly, I, I got onto another show, which was Food Network Star. And that was Food Network's uh, marquee show. It was their biggest franchise. And on the show, there's three, you know, like heavyweights, and that's Bobby Flay, Giada De, La, De Laurentiis and Alton Brown. And basically they become your mentor. So I got onto this show and I made it about halfway through and Bobby mentored me. And then after that, you know, he, um, I guess he, like he, he developed a, a really deep respect for me. And, you know, for those of you that like watch, you know, shows at home, Bobby is the type of person that for some reason he, he comes off TV very abrasively and a lot of people don't like him, but, you know, coming from a chef, um, he is, he is coming from a chef like myself and other chefs. I had the, I have like the utmost respect for him because at the end of the day, he is a cook, you know, as much as he is a television personality, being a cook runs in his blood. And because he is a cook, he recognizes and he respects other cooks. So when you look at his cooking shows, they're very much oriented towards cooking. And it's not like, oh, I'm going to have you cook with your eyes blindfolded and your one hand behind your back. It's really purely about your cooking style and, and your abilities, you know? So he invited me on to, um, to beat Bobby Flay, which was, which was five years into his show. And this also coincided with the opening of Pretty Bird. So this was in 2018. We filmed Beat Bobby Flay three months before, or two months before Pretty Bird opened. And um, 
I thought to myself, what better way yeah. than to, uh, to battle Bobby Flay with fried chicken? Because he's known for his fried chicken and some of the, his Southern or um, his Tex-Mex cooking. But, you know, um, also because I beat him in Iron Chef America and it was very much focused around um, fine dining, plated dishes, you know, very intricate um, cooking uh, and and meticulous cooking. I figured, okay, so, you know, I beat him there. Let's beat him on something that is more casual and in his ballpark. So, but at the same time, it was also a big risk because if I battled him against fried chicken and then Pretty Bird opens and I lose, wow. what's that going to say about Pretty Bird? But, you know, um, it's life is all about a gamble, right? So I, I, I went ahead and um, battled him on fried chicken and then beat him. So it wasn't until um, a year ago when he invited me back onto a show called Bobby's Triple Threat, which is his newest show. Um, he basically kind of on this new show, he hung up his apron. He's not cooking anymore. Instead, he brings on three of his quote unquote titans. So basically, these are his best of the best cooks. And um, as a as a chef, um, as a as a competitor, you go on. And you battle against three of his titans. So on the introduction, um, as I walk in, I remember vividly, he goes, okay, so here's Viet, somebody that I really admired as a cook. And also, he is the only chef that has the distinction of beating me twice. That's when it really hit me. I'm like, oh, shit, you know, like, I actually really did beat him twice, you know, on Iron Chef America and beat Bobby Flay. And here I am on his newest show, cooking against his titans and not against him. So technically, I beat him in three of his shows, um, but the most recent show, Bobby's Triple Threat, I beat his three titans or two of his three titans. Yeah, so it's uh, it's you know to answer your question, it's a it's I I never really thought of it as a big deal until he said that I was the only one with the distinction. And now that I think about it, it's it's I feel very proud, but at the same time, you know I have the utmost respect for him, and um, he is a very talented cook. He is truly humble. And he appreciates um, the hard work that that goes into being a cook. And, you know, and with that said, you know, like that's pure respect. Yeah, I I, I was thinking about that because if I had beat some big name, uh, if if I had let somebody beat me twice and I'm a big name, I, I would probably be really upset, be like, oh, that's my nemesis. And but, you know, I, there's always this backstory to every relationship where you know, there's a common ground, there's a respect there. And, and you know, I, I got to hear it. So, you know, I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, nothing but respect to uh, to Bobby Flay. But yeah, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I look back and, and uh, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot more tougher times than there are easier times. But, you know, that's what makes us us, right? Yeah. What goes into the strategy of these cooking shows? I'm sure there's a million answers, but like, is there a general mindset that goes into it when you approach a contest? Yeah. So the number one strategy is every single show, regardless of what type of competition show it is, the number one strategy is they'll tell you, don't overthink it. Oftentimes with especially uh, time constraints, People tend to overthink things, you know. So, being a com being a competition chef is very, very much different from being a kitchen chef. You know, um, I've learned this, you know, early on. You know, I've been doing television cooking um, for the greater part of fifteen years, 
And um, early on, when I when I first did my show, what I realized um, what my strengths were was being able to work under pressure. And as you know, with a lot of chefs working in a high caliber kitchen, there's always a lot of pressure, not just putting the food out, but commanding a kitchen, managing your staff, uh, the pressures of, you know, of the media and all that. You know, um, there's a lot of that. And also, you know, you tend to have a lot more time in a kitchen. You know, you have you have a team of cooks and you have hours to prepare, prep for whatever it is uh, before service begins. Whereas on a television show, sometimes you have 20 minutes to put together an intricate dish, you know, and oftentimes if you're the chef who's kind of wishy-washy or you can't decide or you try to overthink things and complicate things, you're going to run out of time. So there's a lot of that strategy that's involved. Um, two, uh, you're not truly competing against the other person because you never really even see the other person. The only person you're truly competing against is yourself. And that's managing yourself, telling yourself to, you know, either practice restraint, manage time, not overthink things. You know, those are the two biggest things. So time management and um, not to overthink yourself or not to overthink things. And uh, yeah, you know, those are, those are the things that truly make, um, you know, a successful television com competitive chef versus, you know, somebody that has just started and, and, and is overthinking things. Yeah. You, know? you know, as an audience member, we can only see and hear what's going on, but we can't really taste the food. And I always wonder how well does the food, how good does the food really taste when you're under those conditions, you know, or is, or is it just a TV show where, you know, the judges kind of have to, you know, give a little forgiveness and space for how quickly these things are put together. Yeah. So when you're cooking on TV, taste is all that matters. The only thing that the chefs or the uh, judges put in consideration and are lenient on is temperature. Because as you know, once you cook the dishes out, they're hot with the way that things are produced in television, sometimes these dishes are sitting there before the judges get to taste them and oftentimes they get cold. So you can't truly uh, judge a dish on whether it's hot or cold other than its taste. So when you watch these cooking shows, the one thing that you should pay attention to most is whether or not the chefs are tasting. Tasting, like, you know, like, the mark of a good cook at home or a good chef is that you're constantly tasting. You have to constantly taste because as you cook, flavors develop. As you add things, flavors change. And at the end of the day, you're trying to build, you know, harmony with all of your flavors. Or if you're going for something that's spicy, you want to make sure that the heat is there. You know, so it's really important um, that that you taste your food. And at the end of the day, if you're putting out food that tastes like crap, the judges are going to taste that and they're not going to give you high marks. Um, and the objective, as you know, is to put out good food and to win. So um, at the end of the day, you know, there is no cover up uh, in the magic of TV that you could just put out whatever it is, as long as the plate looks good. It has to taste delicious. I'm listening to a veteran chef speak about cooking, and I am going back into my visual uh, imagination about how you and your mom and dad probably have journeyed through the time of you becoming somebody in the food space. Uh, traditionally, men, uh, Vietnamese men, are not welcomed in the kitchen. Um, how did this all un unfurl in your family? You know, that's a that's a really that's a really good question. Um, kind of like what you said. You know, I 
I, I didn't grow up in the kitchen. I, you know, although I, I ate Vietnamese food every day when my mom cooked at home, it wasn't my um, food of choice. It wasn't my preference. You know, um, when I think about my relationship with Vietnamese food, with the Vietnamese culture, it's actually a rather very complicated relationship, you know? Um, and I, I think a lot of um, first-generation immigrants, um, especially Vietnamese, uh, could probably relate to like my story. And my story is really no different from a lot of other people's story. So, you know, so, you know, my parents were both people. They fled Vietnam, came to the United States uh, in 1979. I was born in a refugee camp on an island of Pulau Bidom off the eastern coast of Malaysia in the state of Trangano. So uh, we were there for about eight months. And um, I came to the United States when I was about six months old with my parents. And then we ended up in um, the suburbs of Chicago, Illinois. So, you know, as a kid, you know, growing up in this poor family, we lived in this townhouse with other families, my aunts, uncles, cousins, um, you know, living in that family with a lot of people, there's always joy, there's always excitement, you know, there's family meals and we do things together. You don't really see the struggle. You know, the struggle didn't come until we were old enough to go to school. So, you know, as a kid, you know, with my name being Viet and my brother being Nam, and the reason my parents named is that was because my it was my grandparents' wishes when my parents fled Vietnam, um, that, you know, if they were to call us Vietnam, they would never forget their country because at that time when they fled, they weren't sure if they were ever to come, ever able to come back. So, um, you know, in school is when we kind of experienced um, a lot of the pains. And when I say pains, um, you know, being picked on, being bullied because of her name and then being bullied and picked on because we were different, you know, um, because of that, that coincided with who I am. Um, that was being a Vietnamese American, the food that I ate, how I was treated. And, and for me and my young self, I realized that everything that I am was not what I wanted because it, it, it was associated to pain. So, you know, growing up, you know, if we ate Vietnamese food, it was like, all right, I didn't prefer it. But if my parents took us out to go, you know, eat McDonald's or, you know, one of my childhood favorites, Portillo's, you know, um, it was one thing that I looked forward to because at the end of the day, it made me feel more American by eating American food. So, you know, I, you know, growing up, um, I didn't spend a lot of time in the kitchen. I did taste a lot of things that my mom made. You know, one of the things that probably stood out most is she used to fry, you know, pork fat that goes into hutiu. And I just remember eating that. that. That was like my kind of version of like my first taste of bacon, you know, just like that crispy molten fat, you know, crunchy flavor of the pork fat, you know. Um, so, you know, I I mean, even until now, I, I don't know a lot of um, Vietnamese cooking. Um, one of the first ingredients that I've started using, which was very recently, was red boat fish sauce, you know. Um, so my, my relationship has been very complicated. But, you know, growing up, um, cooking was also a necessity for myself and my brother, because early on, my parents worked odd hour shifts, which meant that my brother and I had to learn how to kind of cook and take care of ourselves while my parents were at work because they didn't have the luxuries of uh, hiring babysitters. So, you know, one of my first food memories is my parents teaching us how to boil water so that we can make ramen or migoi, you know, and um, we would do this at an age from, gosh, I remember like four or five, I was five, my brother's four, we were making instant ramen for each other. And then, you know, over time we get bored and then we would 
take leftovers. We'd take hot dogs, throw them in there. We would make a dry version of ramen, a wet version of ramen. And then, you know, we were kind of coined like the ramen kings, you know? So, um, you know, I think, I think at that point, um, it started this, this, uh, I developed a sense of, um, this, this creative, like this creative process and cooking was my outlet. So, you know, as a kid, you know, a lot of kids on Saturdays, they love watching cartoons. Um, for me, I was watching PBS. I was watching shows like Yan Can Cook. You know, I was watching Jacques Pepin, Julia Child. Those are the shows that I gravitated to. And um, later through the years, you know, my parents ended up moving us to uh, California and then they started a catering truck business. And um, even then at that time, you know, food to me was like a punishment because, you know, my parents had uh, catering trucks. And then on Saturdays or Sundays, we would have to go to their commissary. We'd have to clean these trucks. We'd have to get ice for the trucks and do shopping. And once again, like it's, 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 it's these things that have like this negativity. Like I just, I, I could have been at home hanging out with my friends, sleeping in, but instead on Sundays, I have to do these things, but you know, the cooking itself, I've always gravitated to. And, you know, I was always the guy who was always cooking when there was a barbecue or when friends were over or when we come home from late night drinking, you know, and we're rummaging through our cupboards looking for food. So, you know, um, wait, can I, can I stop you right there? I yeah. want to know more about the catering truck. What, what what were they doing before the catering truck? So my dad worked. So his first job in the United States, he was working for a machine shop. And he was basically just doing odd end jobs for this machine shop. And my mom ended up working for um, this company where she was just soldering uh, chips on a motherboard. So that was their job, you know. And then it wasn't until 1987 or 1986 when my dad's cousin out of California, he's like, hey, you should consider moving to California. We have this catering truck business. You might want to get into it. It's really good. Money's really good. So that's when my parents moved us out to uh, to the Bay Area in 1987. And, and was the catering business good? Yeah, it was really good. Um, from there to the dot-com era, you know, like my parents were busy. My parents did really, really well up until I want to say 2006 or 2007 after the crash. That's when they kind of left the business. But, you know, they were in the business for over 30 years. Wow. And what kind of food were they cooking? All of it. American, Mexican, Chinese, Vietnamese. They're doing all of it. Just just different interpretations of their native food, Vietnamese food. And then they would just cross over, you know. So, you know, like when I think back to that, you know, like they would make American food, but it was never quite really American food because there would be like a hint of Asian somewhere in there. So like I was never even a fan either of their food, you know, but like when my mom did traditional homemade cooking, when I think back now as an adult, it's like it's it was really good and I really do miss it. You know, but back then there was just interpretations of, of American food, but, you know, they developed a following. So it, it was really, it worked out really, really well for them. Yeah. Wow. What, what, so interesting to hear the, the background of, so when you probably got into the food business, it wasn't uh, out of the blue for them. You know, it was kind of, and it kind of wasn't. So, you know, again, I'm going to go back and, and talk about like, you know, the Asian American experiences and what all of our parents wanted. They, yeah. uh, you know, I, I feel like every parent, especially Vietnamese parents, wants their kids to be, you know, some type of engineer, an attorney, or or a doctor, you know. And, you know, I, I try to go that path in engineering. It just didn't work out. Ended up settling in finance. 
And um, I was just never happy. You know, I, I had enrolled into culinary school at one point in San Francisco. I went to the California Culinary Academy and it was a it was a year and three month. Um, it was a year and three month uh, kind of process. And even then, I really, really hated it. It just didn't challenge me. And also, you know, I, I want to preface, I, I, I was never a really good student. I think back, like I was just an average to below average student that kind of just just hovered through the radar. You know, no one ever really paid attention, you know. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I never did so well was because school never really challenged me in the way that I needed to be challenged. And the structure and idea of school was very similar to cooking school. And once again, it didn't challenge me. So, you know, one of the things that I was truly grateful for with culinary school is that part of our curriculum, you have to do an internship with the restaurant for, you know, 90 days. So for three months or wherever, you know, a lot of my peers were getting internships like at Whole Foods and Costco. I'm like, you're, you're paying this much money so you can go work at these restaurants, you know, or these um, establishments. So, you know, for me, I, I knew that I wanted to do something in like Japanese cooking and I tried to to uh, apply for this uh, this internship in, in Sydney, Australia, but I, I don't know what happened. My paperwork got lost. It never ended up happening. And um, I ended up literally um, down to the wire last minute of the day that I'm supposed to submit my internship. I got an internship with a young um, French chef from, uh, from New York in San Francisco. Um, his name is uh, Laurent Gras. Uh, he had a restaurant in San Francisco called The Fifth Floor, um, a, a hotel called um, Palomar. So I did an internship there, and it was probably one of the most difficult things that I've ever done in my life. Because here I am, this young, you know, wannabe cook um, who's aspiring to be the chef. And um, I'm working in some of the toughest kitchens. And when you think about kitchen culture, you know, prior to, you know, the last four or five years, it was really, really rough. You know, um, everything that you've heard of, it's absolutely true. All the bad, all the good, mostly bad, it's all true. Um, but, you know, through that, you know, at the end of the day, you have a choice. You know, you have a choice of either continue to push or you can quit. And if you quit, you quit. You know, um, at that time, I knew that there was nothing more that I wanted then one, to earn the respect of my peers, um, get the approval of the chef that I was working for. So every day I would work and then every day I would literally get my ass kicked physically, um, emotionally, and mentally every single day. But, you know, through that, like I said, you have a choice. You could quit or not. But, you know, for some reason, I just knew that cooking was something that I was meant to do. And uh, most of all, I was a competitive person in a sense that I'm going to earn everybody's respect. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to continue pushing and pushing and pushing. And um, despite all of that, slowly, you know, I garnered the respect from my peers. And then one day a chef looked at me and be like, Hey, I was doing some task. And he's like, you know what, today you're actually thinking as insulting as that is, that was like the biggest compliment that I ever got you know, from him. And it meant that I was on the right path. So, you know, I worked with him for a couple of years and then I got burnt out as a very young cook. And then I left and then um, I ended up working for um, Washington Mutual. And then from there, uh, transitioned into um, a software company called VMware. Um, so when I was at VMware, I was in my later 20s. 
And this is when I realized that, um, that, you know, living in this Bay area, being in this rat race, making X amount of money, having this type of car or this type of house was not something that brought me happiness. All along, I knew that the happiness that lied within me was um, being in the kitchen, was creating, was feeding people. And um, day after day, that longing became more and more powerful. And um, ultimately, one day, it was, um, I think, January of uh, 2008, I had this opportunity to move to Utah to help a friend open up a restaurant. So um, fast forward uh, five months, packed up my stuff. It was May of 2008, uh, moved out to uh, a city called Provo, which is about an hour south of Salt Lake City. Um, I helped open this restaurant called Spark. And... um, it didn't work out. Um, and mainly it didn't work out because myself and my partner, we just, we just didn't have the best relationship. So I ended up working there for eight months and then ultimately getting fired. And, um, during that time, as difficult as it was, you know, here I was 29 years old for the first time ever in my life. I'm not living at home because I was living at home until 29. And, um, Aside from not living at home, I was in a whole new place. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any family that um, I could count on. I just had myself in this little apartment. And um, it was very, very difficult, you know. Um, So, you know, through those days, you know, um, I would keep a journal and I would kind of write down, you know, if I had my own restaurant, how would things be differently? Um, how would things be different and how would I treat things differently? Um, what would the philosophy of my cooking be, you know? Um, and, you know, as much as I didn't like working there um, at that time, it was such a pivotal moment, a key moment in my career because of that struggle. Um, the idea and the opportunities was born, you know, like they kind of say like a Phoenix rises from the flame. Okay. You know, um, all the way up until the day that I got fired, you know, when I got fired, you know, I've never been fired ever in my career, ever in my life. And this is the first time I got fired. And I've only been in Utah for eight months. So, you know, I called my parents and I told my parents that, like, I just got fired, um, but I don't want to go home. You know, uh, a couple of days ago before getting fired, you know, I um, I was on Craigslist and I found this space in Salt Lake City that I fell in love with. It was this house. That was um, that was empty. It had a parking lot, and it reminded me of a lot of um, very charming high-end restaurants in the Bay Area, like the French Laundry, Manresa, and that's what I aimed to do. So, you know, the process of working for um, my partner being, you know, miserable, you know, writing my journey, thinking about all the things that I would do differently, it also led me to driving up to Salt Lake City, you know, on the weekends searching around for, you know, for this made up restaurant that I would have one day. And it wasn't until I got fired that it pushed me to do it. So, you know, after I got fired, drove up to Salt Lake City, signed the lease, and then um, six and a half months later, opened up a restaurant called Forage. And um, Forage was just, you know, a small little restaurant. It had 32 seats. Um, We did a set menu. It was the only set menu restaurant in the state of Utah at that time. So basically when I say set menu, you as a guest, you come in, you would get 14 to 17 courses. There are no options. You would just basically trust the kitchen, the cooks and the chef, you know, um, with this concept. Like an omakase, huh? Yeah, like an omakase, exactly. You know, so um, with this concept, um, 
you know, after a couple of years, I ended up getting Food and Wine Magazine's Best New Chef. And that was probably the biggest pivotal moment of my career. Because as a young chef, there's two things that you want to have. You want to have a you want to have a James Beard award, or you want to get a an award from Food and Wine Magazine. So each year they choose 10 chefs from across the country. And when you think about like Thomas Keller from the French Laundry, some of the greatest chefs, they're a part of this very small class. And when I when I started working in San Francisco under Laurent Gras, um, he had just been elected as best new chef. And I remember as a young cook, thumbing through the magazine and telling myself, you know, one day I'm going to um, work my ass off and get this award. So, you know, fast forward to 2011, you know, I got the phone call, got the award. And, you know, it, it, it proved that, you know, despite all the difficulties, all the sacrifices, you know, at the end of the day, if you continue to push and go for what you believe in, you know, it'll pay off, you know. So I was very fortunate, got that award. And with that award, it opened up a lot of doors, um, television, other awards, other opportunities. And um, here I am now sitting in front of you talking to you about this. <laughs> oh, what an amazing journey. Yeah. Uh, what what kinds of food uh, did you do it for? It just sounds like a very... Um you know, whatever season, whatever's in season, that's what you're, you're going for, right? Yeah. So the name Forage came from the fact that um, aside from the love of restaurants and cooking, I love the outdoors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, being in the outdoors was a place that brought me lots of comfort. Uh, when I was young, I was in Boy Scouts. Uh, you know, we lived near the mountains and we did a lot of hiking and I, and I loved that. So at that time in 2009, foraging was starting to become a very hip thing because of a restaurant called Noma in Copenhagen. You know, they did a lot of foraging. And one of the things that I learned early on living here in Utah is that we're surrounded by this amazing mountain range called the Wasatch Mountain Range. And um, spending a lot of time outdoors, I realized that there is an incredible bounty of edible things all over the place in the mountains, mushrooms, herbs, you know, fish, critters, all sorts of stuff. So that led my curiosity into buying books, you know, reading about foraging, attending classes about foraging, and starting to incorporate the things that I find into our dishes. So at that time as well, there was a rise in a concept called farm the table, you know, like, oh, this is a farm the table restaurant. Well, we weren't just farm the table. We were like a hyper local restaurant utilizing things that you don't, you can't get from the farm. They don't grow naturally in the farm, you know? So it set us apart. So the type of food that we cooked was like, you know, I, I say contemporary American, but it was like a melting pot. You know, we utilized all sorts of techniques, ingredients, Japanese, American, Middle Eastern. Uh, but at the end of the day, the um, cuisine was very thoughtful. Uh, the dishes were very thoughtful, very complex, um, very methodical. There was a level of finesse. And, you know, each plate was, I don't know, three to four bites at most. Um, and uh, it would add up to between 14 to 17 courses. And the narrative around it was telling a story in which we lived, you know, in, in Utah, there's, you know, during a certain part of the season, there's a type of herb that you can get, a type of fish that you can get. And, you know, like it wasn't easy to get it. And like, you know, that kind of carry that narrative. Yeah. How, how so, much of the Noma bullseye, the Noma target in your mind is happening when you were running forage? Like, did you have it, you know, pinned on a map 
mentally and say, that's kind of like where I want to be? You know, at that time, um, Forge happened for several different reasons. First and foremost, it was for selfish reasons, for um, reasons that um, I was angry. And that was to get back at my previous partnership. You know, I'm like, you know, you fired me. I'm going to open up this restaurant and you're going to regret it, you know, but those are the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know? And then with that mentality, I started to shift and kind of like dive into my cuisine and cooking and nature and then kind of forgot about that. And that kind of just carried me. But, you know, when I when we first when I first started this concept of forage, I was just a young cook. I wanted to do I wanted to copy these amazing restaurants that I admired, you know, and in Utah, there's a saying that we're always 10 years behind. And even though what I was doing or what I was copying is relatively nothing new, but in Utah, it was new. So being in Utah at that time, there was a culmination of being in the right place at the right time, doing things that led me to become a successful chef, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, I, I try to copy a lot of things. Sous vide, which is like cooking in a bag, was a very big thing. And then all of a sudden, thinking more and more about the name Forage, and then learning that it's becoming popular, we started to incorporate some of that. Again, this is because as a young cook or young artist, you you lend your inspiration from other great chefs, other great mediums and artists, you know? So, you know, like we had to find a pathway. So we started um, foraging and at the end of the day, there's other restaurants out there. You have to ask yourself, what sets yourself apart from other restaurants? You know, on any given weekend, you and I can go to the farmer's market. Let's say you have a restaurant, I have a restaurant. We have access to the same ingredients and we're doing the same things. How is that going to separate us aside from, you know, our cooking techniques or maybe even the ingredients? So for us, it was really ingredient driven and um, terroir driven, you know. When I think about foraging, I think about how nervous I would be to pick out the wrong berry or the wrong mushroom and feed it to somebody and you watch them basically flailing on the floor. How yeah. do you prevent that? Like, how do you know that whatever you're doing is safe? You know, it requires an incredible amount of research, lots of reading classes, but at the end of the day, there's native species that are edible. Let's just say, um, Boletus edulis, which is boletes or king boletes, which translates to you and I know as porcini mushrooms, you know, um, there are several varieties of them. And I only forage for things that I know 100% are edible. Things that I don't know, things that I question, I always take pictures or samples back. And then there's a, a huge community that can dive in and help you with that. But we only play it safe and pick things that we know 100% are edible and are safe. But yeah, there are things out there that are very poisonous. Um, more often than not, usually like if you're, if it's uh, some type of mushroom, the reaction that one would get is just upset stomachs um, or upset stomach. Um, that's pretty much it. You know, there's, there's mushrooms that can kill you, but there's, there isn't, there's not many here in Utah. And if you try to get those, it's very difficult to access. So, you know, it's crazy. You when played I it safe, you know, but it was still interesting. Yeah, it's crazy. When I first met you, I I, I saw, you know, there's a, a sort of radiance to you uh, as a chef and, you know, the brand goes with Iron Chef and, you know, all of these TV sh cooking shows. And, you know, um, 
And then, you know, throughout the evening, I had heard about the pretty bird and fried chicken, but I was like always having this feeling like he's not here because of fried chicken. You just don't get to this, you know, place right here. And now we get to hear the whole backstory of all of this, uh, the training and, and all the experience. Do you miss the fine dining? Every day. Every day. There's a certain level, there's a certain creative process, um, a certain level of intensity and um, creativity that is involved in that type of cooking. You know, one of the one of the reasons why Pretty Bird has become so successful is Pretty Bird is just a vehicle that really allows me to apply what I've learned into something that is very familiar, humble, and delicious. At the end of the day, it's not about putting something intricate out. It's not about me building this narrative around this dish. Like my hair, Kenneth, here is a dish of native um, brown trout, locally foraged um, uh, watercrest that I went on a full moon night and harvested it under, you know, um, heavy weather, snow and rain, and I hiked it back 10 miles and I made this delicious sauce that ties everything together. So the narrative is interesting. You know, there's there's a time and place for it. But oftentimes I feel like a lot of chefs, a lot of young chefs, a lot of young cooks get carried away with the narrative um, and kind of lose sight about what really matters, the ingredient itself and how you execute it and how you cook. So there's a certain level of pretentiousness. Um, you know, to me, there's nothing more pretentious than for me to put a dish down and tell you why you should eat this and why it's cool and have this air about me. Those are the things that I started to grow very restless knowing what I was doing. And, you know, people like that. But I started to mature as a cook and I started to evolve and change. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to take everything that I've learned. So what's made Pretty Bird successful is that one, you come in, you smell fried chicken, you come into a Pretty Bird restaurant, you know what fried chicken is. I feel like every culture has, you know, a a um, uh, a form of fried chicken. And um, what makes it different is that I don't have to give you this whole backstory of what Pretty Bird is, although I am now, but, you know, it, it doesn't go with every single person. You know, all the techniques, all the things that I've learned, the balance of flavors, textures, composition, all that is applied to something that's very simple. You know, at the end of the day, there's a lot of hype that's built around lots of different new restaurants, lots of different dishes. At the end of the day, I could tell you this, regardless of who you are, what background you come from, how you eat, your palate will never lie to you. Your mind will lie to you. Your heart will lie to you, but your palate will never lie to you. And what I'm saying is that there's people that search out restaurants you know, near and far, the best, the worst, all of that stuff. And they take extreme measures to go experience these restaurants. And because they do, there's an expectation from their followers, their friends, their viewers, that this restaurant has to be good. So the person that's experiencing these restaurants, they're going to feel like the responsibility of saying it's really good because they did, they took these extreme measures to get there and they don't want to look like a fool but at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, like, is this a place where you want to come back? 
You know, is this something that has craveability? You know, there's a lot of restaurants built around hype and a lot of people go there once, they go there twice, and eventually they realize like it's not that good. You know, that hype train that is built up is very real. Um, but like I said, people's palates don't lie. So with Pretty Bird, you know, the idea is to build something that's extremely delicious, extremely craveable, and something that has longevity, you know, not something that is very singular. Like, you know, like, so hot chicken, as you know, is something that has become extremely, like extremely popular in the last six or seven years. So hot chicken was developed, established in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where it gained its popularity, specifically from a restaurant called Prince's Hot Chicken. That's where it was like invented. And then, um, you know, I'm sure people from LA are very familiar with this one institution called Holland Rays. Holland Rays, I believe, is probably one of the first restaurants that brought hot chicken um, from Nashville to California. And, um, you know, this is 2015, 2014, I believe. Um, it became super famous. And because it got so famous, so many people copied, including myself, you know, um, at the end of the day, we are not a Nashville hot chicken restaurant. We're a Nashville style. And when I say style, it's because there is a lot of heat that comes with our fried chicken, but it's not a singular heat. Um, when you when you experience Nashville hot chicken, it's just varying levels of heat, you know, and heat at a certain level becomes very addicting. You know, your body craves for it more and more and more. But for me, um, when I think about things that are spicy, making food spicy is relatively simple. You know, you can pull out some cayenne pepper at home, put in addition, make it really hot. Anybody can do that. But where lies the um, experience um, and the knowledge is being able to balance out that heat and flavor. Because as you know, heat can overpower anything. And you could put as much work into buying the best chicken, sourcing the best spices, the best salt, the best fish sauce. If you make it super spicy, all of that might as well go away. You know, so being able to elevate casual cooking, understanding the flavors and balances, and then producing something that is flavorful yet, you know, um, has craveability. That's where, that's where the, that's where, that's what makes Pretty Bird special. And that's where a lot of the years of uh, formal training came from. You go into a lot of theor theoretical, philosophical yeah, it's about food and and the notions of taste and and flavor and profiles. If you didn't go to school, do you think you could have arrived at all this stuff intellectually? In other words, do we need as a chef to go to some sort of have some sort of foundation as it pertains to learning the different characteristics of cooking? You know, it depends. It depends on what type of person you are. So for me. I didn't really learn anything in culinary school. And um, I mean, if I think if if I think of out of one out of 10, what did I learn? I would say probably a two. You know, I learned some basic things, but again, I was also an individual that has always been very curious. Curiosity is probably what made me a very successful cook early on and then a successful chef is because I'm always curious and wanting to know how things work, how things pair, how things would be if I were to do this or I would do that, you know, and um, having that sense of curiosity, you know, it really helped me develop different flavors and it helped me in my career. Um, but, you know, if you're a type of cook that needs structure, then that school is for you. 
you know, but at the end of the day, I think with any type of creative medium, there has to be a level of, um, of curiosity yeah. uh, and, and humility and humbleness that really could get you to where you could be, you know? So um, if I didn't go to culinary school, would I have been successful? I think yes, because early on, I read a lot of books. I've read a lot of magazines, read up on a lot of really great restaurants. And then I kind of dove down that rabbit hole, trying to understand what type of cuisine, how they did it, you know, understanding the backgrounds of the chefs and then fantasizing being in that and trying to create that, you know, and that's what kind of, um, you know, led my career the way that it's led, you know, but at the end of the day, like I said, it's, it's, it's that sense of curiosity that I think is really, really important. And that's what really separates, you know, a great chef from a good chef. And how much time now are you spending in the TV world versus, you know, on the ground building these businesses? <laughs> you know, I, I guess it depends on who you ask. If you ask my wife, he's like, oh, he's not in the restaurants anymore. You know, um, at Pretty Bird, we we do a very limited amount of things. You know, um, the core items that we have in our menu, I can list it on one hand. You know, when we first opened up Pretty Bird, there was only two items on the menu, two main items. All the items together, you know, if you count our French fries, our slaw, and our drink, it's really only five items. Now we have 10 items, which is still a very small. So we have three core items, and then we have, you know, some sides, and that's basically it. So going back to being a chef, you know, being an early cook early on, you know, when you, when you learn, you're, you're like the sponge, you're, you're absorbing all of these different techniques, all these different things, and you want to kind of apply them to all one dish. And what tends to happen is that your dish gets lost in translation. Let's just say, Hey, today I want to do this, um, this sushi inspired uh, dish. And I want to do this nigiri, but I want to do all these complex sauces and all this stuff. And you're like, at the end of the day, there's like a piece of nigiri and then there's the sauce and there's all these garnishes and herbs and side things. And like, it's like, what the hell is this? You know, as you start to mature as a cook, you start to learn um, self-restraint. So perfect example, as I just mentioned, Japanese culture, Japanese cuisine, fish and rice, two very simple things. How do we make it so harmonious, delicious, and beautiful? You know, um, so knowing that and, and, and going through that path, you know, I wanted to focus on just a couple core items, make it really good, and that's all that matters. There's no point of trying to do a salad, trying to do a grill this, a grill that, and offer all these things. We just do fried chicken. We do it extremely well and we make it extremely delicious. And that's all that matters. I'm going to throw you a quick curveball here. Okay. If you were to do a Vietnamese restaurant, what would be your stripped down version of it? What, what item, what like, would you do a rice dish, a pho dish, noodle? What would you do to kind of like mimic what you're doing at Pretty Bird? Um, yeah. Because it's it's very complicated. Uh, Vietnamese cooking. There's so many different um, yes. aspects and different types of food. But what would you strip down? How how could you kind of really bring it down to its essence? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the first Vietnamese renditions that I've done was what you experienced. I did a Vietnamese banh mi sandwich, 
but pretty bird style, you know? Um, so nowadays all I do is basically sandwiches, mm. but the Vietnamese sandwich, it's not just a sandwich, as you know, there's a lot of complexities, you know, there's a lot of different influences, you know, influence from the French, you know, introducing the baguette, you know, um, there's a lot of different layers. And because of that, I love it. There's a lot of, as you know, there's hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese banh mi sandwiches, and there's very few that we stick to that we really like and love, you know? And because of that, you know, when I first did this Vietnamese style banh mi sandwich um, uh, at the house for you to, to try, you know, that was something that kind of like, I'm like, wow, I actually could do this. I could do it differently. Even though that was done on a whim, if I had sat down and be more thoughtful, yeah. I think that I can do, um, you know, something that's very familiar, complex, but also something that um, that is complementary to the Vietnamese palate. Yeah. Wow, that that is such you know. And full disclaimer, I never got to taste that. But you know, I, I actually remember the conversation now. Yes, I was so pissed. I mean, I got. I mean, yeah. I'm not pissed at what happened. I I got pulled out for a conversation, and that took up you know the whole you know time that you were serving it. And by the time I came in there were no more left. I mean, it went by, I felt like in 15 minutes, they were all gone. You and know, I think, I think there was plenty, there was a lot of people that had not just seconds, but thirds. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but again, you know, being a successful and great podcast person, you are, um, you got to branch out and talk to people. And sometimes in these conversations, it gets carried away. And unfortunately for you, you didn't get to have any, but you know, hopefully one of these days when, if, you know, um, I get back to, um, the OC or somewhere in LA County and, um, we do pretty bird, I will for sure do a Vietnamese version of, um, mm. our fried chicken sandwich. So yeah. you're, you're, you're saying that you're going to do the fried chicken sandwich, uh, Vietnamese style by me at the restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I, I mean, I, I would love to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah because, you, know, like, you know, like cooking has always been, um, you know, a sense of my identity and who I am. And um, like earlier, like I mentioned to you, I have a very complicated relationship with our Vietnamese culture. And that complication has grown more and more as I've grown up. And, you know, now in my career, I'm literally on the eve of turning 45. So I turned 45 in January. And um, at 44 years old right now, when if you were to ask me who I am, um, where I'm from, and what I do, there's obviously a very general answer, but the complexity lies in to my complicated relationship with Vietnam and my culture, my name, all that um, from growing up. And because of that complication, it's pushed me away from really absorbing, understanding, you know, my culture, our culture. So, you know, um, I credit a lot to my mom and um, from Red Boat Fish Sauce because that was the first Vietnamese ingredients that I ever used in my cooking career. You know, um, I remember this was, you know, this is probably, gosh, 2011 or 2012 was when I first got a bottle of fish sauce and started using it. And I didn't like it, you know, as, as a kid growing up in the Vietnamese home, that thing smelled that and like frozen durian that my mama fell out in the refrigerator. It was awful. I didn't want to use that stuff. But, you know, um, also as a chef, you know, as you grow and mature, 
you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, like when you first start off, you copy, you know, and you, you, you take things that really inspire you and you try to turn it in your own. There's only so much that you can do with that. And then ultimately you reach a stage where you're like, okay, everybody's kind of doing that. Everybody's shopping at the farmer's market. How am I going to produce something? How am I going to produce a dish that is uniquely me? So, you know, as a chef, you start to dig deep. Okay. Who am I? Where do I come from? And what is my relationship with that space or that place? And that's Vietnam. And for the greater part of my life, I've always been ashamed of it. I've always pushed it away. And here I am now, you know, later in life, trying to break down those walls and learn more about my culture. And fish sauce was kind of like the gateway drug in a sense. You know, if the simple ingredient that is quintessential Vietnamese can inspire me the way that it did, what about the countless thousands of other ingredients? You know, so uh, so that's that's kind of where I am right now. Um, it's been super exciting, you know. Um, Gung from Red Boat and his daughters invited me to go to Vietnam with them in uh, November, and I haven't been back to Vietnam since 2001, and um, it's been it's been 22 years, right? And uh, Vietnam has changed. You know, when I watch these videos on social media of Vietnam, it's not the Vietnam that I knew back then. You know, ever since the government opened up trade, the country is like the sponge that's absorbing, you know, Western culture. And like, it's so hip and cool. And it's not, you know, this, it's not this, you know, this, this third world country that we used to think of Vietnam as war torn country and this complicated relationship that people had because of the war. It's so much more than that now. And that's, you know, as a chef, those are the things that are really exciting for me. Um, especially being able, being able to visit after all of this change and this this incredible momentum that the, our country is having right now. You know, it, it's it's weird. Men of our generation, uh, Vietnamese American men, uh, we experience this sort of weird trauma that that I'm going to say it. The women don't experience the Vietnamese women. Vietnamese American women don't go through the same traumatic experience of male emasculation we don't go through you know they don't go um you know i mean well let's just talk about frankly i mean like on the dating apps you know asian women are up at the higher end and then asian men are at the at the very bottom it's a, yeah. it's a fact and we have to deal with that we have to toil in that space and i started the podcast because these things are unresolved and i don't Think that they are ever going to be resolved for me because I live in this heavy leaning Vietnamese space and heavy leaning American space. And I float, you know, between the two extremes. So when I get to hear this sort of brief uh, that you talk about with your return, this rebirth of, of, of returning to the culture and going back to Vietnam and being so excited, it excites me so much. But at the same time, I am also grateful that you and I both got to experience the pain of growing up as a Vietnamese American men uh, here in America, because without those stories and without those pain points, uh, we would be different people. And I'm very happy that you've become who you are today, because down the road, I'm going to have a sandwich 
that will be in my mouth and I can enjoy it because it is the fruits of a cultural sort of symbiosis that's happened. And yeah. um, here we are. Yeah. You know, as you know, um, especially in, you know, Vietnamese history, our culture, uh, we are very familiar with adversity, you know, um, and like they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. You know, I think that's what really has helped, um, you know, people of our culture uh, develop that resiliency. But yeah, you're, you're, you're totally true about um, how Vietnamese men are treated versus Vietnamese women. And the way that the media has portrayed Vietnamese women being submissive and being this kind of mysterious figure. And, you know, uh, you know, they get, they get their, their, they're seen as like this sexual object yeah. you know, that's submissive and all that. And I think that that's why it's, it's kind of been that way. And then for men, you know, we're kind of like the slant eye, short guy, small penis, yeah. you know, like we're just, we're not, we're not, we're not, um, desirable. we're not desirable, yeah. but you know, I, 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 I think that the media is slowly changing. Um, big time. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've seen a surge of, um, people of color on television. Um, and I think that it's going to start changing a lot, especially with the developments of Vietnam, the, um, you know, the relationship people are starting to have with Vietnam. And, and I, you know, I hope that it changes, you know, um, I myself am not married to a Vietnamese woman, I'm married to a Greek woman. And, um, the mixing of our culture has been amazing. You know, we do Vietnamese Greek foods and, and, um, you know, my wife loves the Vietnamese culture and she looks amazing in a Vietnamese aoyai, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's, I try to see things, um, differently when it comes to that space, you know, um, because I know it's a struggle. I know people don't like change. And, you know, I mean, to this day, you know, I, I, I always notice that people give us looks when we're walking around, you know, because it's not common, but um, it's up to us to kind of break those barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's up to us to con to control the narratives. And by the way, I did try, uh, I did have multiple servings of the boat uh, of the lamb that you served. That yeah. was, that was fire. It was so, you know, I, I look back at the pictures I'm like, man, this could have been so much better looking, but like, you know, I, I just want to preface. So, um, so Red Boat invited me out to do uh, a two 10-minute cooking segment and then this, this small little snippet commercial that I was supposed to do. And um, it was probably the one thing when I, I look back in my whole entire career that scared me the most, speaking in Vietnamese. <laughs> you know, again, it, it has to do with my complicated relationship with Vietnam, but more importantly, you know, I had to do this little commercial, like three paragraphs speaking in Vietnamese that um, required me not to speak in Vietnamese, like at home, but in a um, formal tongue, you know, so that was really, really complicated. But then um, when I was there doing this, you know, all of a sudden, um, Gung, uh, Gung from uh, Red Boat, he's like, hey, uh, do you think you could hook those up for, you know, maybe 30 people that come. I'm like, well, really? So last minute, we had to kind of scramble and put those things, those dishes together. We had to get extra ingredients. Um, but, you know, I guess it turned out well, you know. Um, and also, I don't know if you know, but like this is a little trivia, but um, 
fish sauce was not invented by Vietnamese people, nor was it invented by anybody in Southeast Asia. It was actually invented by Greeks. Yeah. And from the Greeks to the Romans to the spice trade, that's how fish sauce ended up in uh, in, in Southeast Asia. So that's a very proud thing that my wife loves to always remind. <laughs> you know who I brought this up with was Ankung in on our podcast. He brought that up. Yeah, yeah, it was it was cool because I I had known that and I just wanted to hear it from him and and uh, you know have him explain sort of the history of actual fish sauce, and and you know when I was. Um, uh it was a few years ago do you remember that hamburger brand umami burgers yeah yep umami burgers the first one that came onto the scene um maybe it was 20 years ago was right by my i was living right by, by it and i would take my mom and dad there constantly and we would look into the um the ingredients and it it proudly wrote fish sauce yeah and from that moment on i was like okay that's another dot on the map for, you know, uh, Asians here. They're using fish sauce in a patty, in a hamburger patty. And that was one of my favorite hamburger places in the world. And it still is like one of the best to me. And they use fish sauce. Yeah. You know, like when you think about fish sauce inside the hamburger patty, it really is nothing foreign because, you know, in the American pantry, there's two ingredients that stand out. Oftentimes are used on steak or even the marinades of certain meats like beef or hamburgers. And that's A1, Worcestershire sauce. If you look at the first or second line ingredient, it's anchovies. Mm. Anchovies has been a big part of the American diet, whether they like it or not, or not knowing. You know, it has always been a huge part in, in our culture. Um, and also, you know, because of fermentation, it brings out savoriness. That's what we know. People now that food science is very prevalent, like there's an understanding of like fermented foods are better for you. But more importantly, fermented foods produce amino acids that are savory, that make you crave food more. You know, it's that fifth sense, that umami that you had just talked about. But yeah, umami burger, you know, when, when they started using fish sauce, as you know, it's nothing new because like at home, when you eat nam nung or whatever it is, you know, balalak, it has, it has fish sauce in there. Um, so if it was delicious, you know, it's delicious because of that. And, you know, I credit the fish sauce, um, to, to our success. The fish sauce is in our marinade, it's in our sauce, it's in our slaw, basically in everything, you know, and it doesn't have to taste like fish sauce. That's the beauty about it. There's dishes where you want it to stand out and there's dishes that could be made 10 times better by just having it, but where there's just enough to really boost the flavors without overwhelming it with the smell of fish. Thank you so much today for coming on. Yeah, You know, the, the time flew by in like two minutes. It felt like, uh, you know, it was like clinging on to every word. I'm like, I, I, I enjoy listening to your journey. Thank you. Thank I enjoyed you. being here. Thank you so much. Peter. And then also, by the way, I, I just have to add, I, 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 I went through your, um, your blogs and um, not your blogs, but your, uh, but your podcasts. And I saw that you had Rachel Lee cook and I'm like, man, I, I, I gotta get on this podcast because Rachel Lee Cook, she was like my first like real crush, you know, like, man, she was from, from she's all that, you know, to like, you know, this is your brain on drugs commercial, like bashing things. She has always been like somebody that I'm like, man, like, like, well, let's you know, talk like, about this. Let's unpack this. Do you know why she came on? Because of uh, her movie. Yeah. On, yeah, on yeah. And that was even more 
special. The fact that she did that movie, it's just like, I feel that much closer to her than I was back when I was watching, um, when I was watching uh, She's All That. Yeah. Yeah. And turns out that she was a big proponent of having Scott Lee in, you know, very, uh, you know, scenes that we don't get to see. We didn't get to grow up watching a Vietnamese man make out with a, a white woman. And a you lead, know, yeah. And a lead role. And I can't believe we're still even in this mindset, but here we go. We're like, we're going to, we, we unpack this because it is a thing. And it is a thing that was really affecting us when we were growing up because having a white girlfriend was really uh, the pinnacle of your, you know, success as an American man in a Vietnamese yeah. American man in, in the U S yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's uh, it's crazy, but um, things are getting better. You know, we 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 can reflect back and talk about all we want, but I think um, listening to podcasts like yours, um, sharing stories and experiences, um, I think those are the necessary and key ingredients in helping make this world a better place. So thank you for that. Thank you, Viet. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.